So, did you ever come across instances where a man was was pretty successful at keeping his wives happy and, and fulfilled and, you know, in all ways that it was just, that it was just a great experience for everyone involved. I know you talked a little bit about that earlier, but. Yeah. Um, uh, the Dudley Levitt is the, ex- you know, the positive example I like to use. Um, right. Another one that's interesting is um, John Taylor, who was the apostle who eventually uh, who had post-manifesto wives and eventually was excommunicated. His son, Sam Taylor, wrote uh, a biography of him. And it's actually almost more a biography of Sam Taylor's mother, who was the wife of John Taylor. But it's it's fascinating because he really admired his father. He really loved his father. And, um, and he, the book isn't an attack on polygamy. And, and it shows, but it shows the... Um, the problems with it, you know, at the same time that it shows how uh, John Taylor loved each one of his wives and loved all his children. And and, um, that's one of the really striking things that you get from that book is how, despite his his fascinating, you know, flamboyant lifestyle, how much he loved his his kids and how his kids um, reacted to that. That's another example. I, I guess you you could call it positive, even though there were, you know, financial problems in that in that story also. Um, you could say if you're a, a Mormon in defense of some of these men, you know, often they they stopped being able to provide because uh, Mormonism because polygamy became illegal in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, which made it more difficult for for Mormon men to to provide for their families, right? So let, let's 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 talk about that for a second. Um, let's fast forward to, um, you know, whenever the the heat started being applied by the federal government, polygamists started being, uh, you know, incarcerated, persecuted. Uh, the church uh, tries to defend itself, I guess, in some way, but you know, all these activities ultimately led uh, to the 1890 Manifesto. Correct. What can you tell us about uh, the dynamics that that led to that uh, monumentous change? I imagine it wasn't an easy decision for Wilford Woodruff. I imagine that Brigham Young was faced with considering that that option. Um, Uh And John Taylor, of course, uh, obviously didn't choose to, to rescind polygamy either. What can you tell us just at a high level about, you know, the brethren starting to entertain the possibility of polygamy needing to uh, to start uh, being phased out? Yeah, well, um, in 1882, Congress passed the Edmonds Act. And in 1887, Congress packed the Edmund, Edmonds-Tucker Bill. And these bills were were bills that had teeth. You know, they were, um, they made it very, very difficult for Mormons to continue practicing polygamy. And um, 
uh, with the Edmunds Tucker bill, the church would have had just simply had to given up all its property to the federal government, including the temples. And um, so, uh, you know, there's enormous pressure on on the church, and they had hoped to get statehood because then they could, you know, create their own marriage laws, which would allow polygamy. But you know the United States government would not allow them statehood. <laughs> you know, uh, so, this, this makes me want to ask you a quick question. If you, if you okay. know, when, whenever slavery is talked about in the United States, there's always this notion of, well, for some, it was clearly about human rights and about racism and bigotry and treating people fairly. But there was also this notion of, economics, North versus South, and competition, and all, all sorts of less than altruistic motives that uh, some attribute towards uh, other causes um, in the Civil War, and, and specifically that motivated the abolitionists to do what they did. I, I'm curious, you know, other than offending the traditional Christian puritanical sensitivities of the average American, do you do you have a sense for what other dynamics, if there were any, that made this even be on the radar and be significant enough to where two major pieces of legislation would be passed? Um, well, um, it's interesting. It's kind of parallel to slavery. And uh, the first Republican Party platform uh criticized what they called the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. And that was back in 1854. Right. And Abraham Lincoln signed a anti-polygamy bill way back in 1862. Okay, during the Civil War. Yeah, Merrill Anti-Bigamy Act. Hmm. And that was kind of... The Mormons just ignored it, and you know the federal government didn't try to enforce it. Um, uh, so it was only the the Edmonds Act and the Edmonds Tucker Bill. They really had teeth. You know, they okay. made it so Mormons couldn't vote, Mormons couldn't hold office. Many of them were sent to jail, as you mentioned. Uh, then they were going to take away all the church's property. Um, so, um, and there was a crusade. There was a real crusade, um, um, an anti-polygamy crusade in in America. And in the East, so hmm. it, it's really an interesting culture clash. Yeah. Uh, at that point, and um, so anyway, you have the uh, the manifesto in 1890, and Mormonism, Mormons still viewed polygamy as so important that many of them continued practicing it, but they just had to practice it in secret. And as as you mentioned, and as I mentioned. Um, there was the doctrine that to get the highest degree of salvation, you of exaltation, you had to be a polygamist. And so many, you know, church leaders, many, you know, church members still wanted to get that highest level of salvation. Right. And there were some other motivations, too. Um, there were some situations where a man was married to a woman and she didn't have any kids, and he wanted kids, and so... He, he wanted a uh, plural wife so he could have kids. Sometimes you had situations like that, hmm. post-manifesto marriages. But, 
you had an, uh, quite a number of post-manifesto polygamy, polygamous marriages, and they were a number of the general authorities were involved with these marriages. Um, and so you had the colonies in Mexico, and um, the first presidency would send people down to the colonies with kind of uh, a recommend written in code that they be allowed to be married um, polygamously. So the sense is, just to make sure our listeners are in sync, uh, is, it, is it sort of the sense that Wilford Woodruff did um, did make the first manifesto in 1890, even though it was in Scripture, basically saying, you know, we we now come out against polygamy and we don't want to do it anymore, but that that was done with the full knowledge that they would continue practicing it, they would just try and keep it really secret? Um. I believe there were some general authorities who kind of had that idea, yeah. They, it was just so important to Mormons. And it was so difficult to give it up that they felt like they they could not give it up. And is there any way to know how complicit Wilford Woodruff, you know, was in, in um, that? He was, he was involved in, the, in sending people down to Mexico to have plural marriages. Was there a feeling that that was there a feeling that that was legal because it was outside of the United States then? So, so basically, they're saying we'll abide by the laws of the United States, but what we do in other countries is our business. Is that kind of what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, there was some of that feeling. Though, when people began to realize that they were having marriages outside the country, then they kind of they they tried to get them to say, "No, we don't have marriages outside of the country," and so. Um, but they continued to have marriages both in Canada, plural marriages both in Canada and in a lot of them, quite a few of them in in Mexico. What about in the United States? Some in the United States also. Okay. Um, so it's almost... Some, some on ships. Ships. You know, the ships that were not on in any country at all. They were so maritime polygamous marriages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's almost like a return to the Joseph... Smith, Nauvoo, Kirtland-style polygamy, where it goes underground yeah, it, again. Yeah, it was, it was secret polygamy again. Okay, so it's let's not stop practicing it, but let's just do it more tactfully and subtly. Right. And um, this, I didn't write about this at all in my book, uh, but I recommend to people a really fine book by Carmen Hardy called uh, Solemn Covenant. The Mormon polygamous passage, and he writes about this period and what how what a difficult period it was for Mormons, you know, to this transition from from polygamy to monogamy, and you know, it's it's a myth to say all of a sudden we were, you know, fully polygamous, you know, before 1890, and then, you know, after the manifesto we were fully monogamous. It just didn't happen that way. There was a transition period. You know, and if you think about it, that that would make sense. But um, it was secret polygamy, and once again, you have these, you know, you have the public professions, and then you have the private practice, and they were, they were at odds with each other. And um, the Mormons who did it this way felt that they were doing the right thing, but, you know, they had to pay a price in credibility, and. Um, you know, and you can't keep these things secret, even though you try to. And so it became well known that there was this post-manifesto polygamy going on. And 
it came out especially in the Reed Smoot hearings when Reed Smoot was elected senator and went east, and and um, the Senate refused to seat him until there were hearings about whether Mormons really had given up polygamy, and um, and that was these hearings were very dramatic and um, very embarrassing to the Mormons that there was all this documentation for this post-manifesto polygamy, and so. Um, Joseph F. Smith, who was the prophet at that time, he came out with what we called the Second Manifesto in 1904. Um, and these Smoot hearings, you can, there's a wonderful book about that by a woman named Kathleen Flake. And so to, to read about that in detail, uh, get the book by Kathleen Flake. Okay. But so, it's a totally fascinating period in Mormon history. Um, so the impetus to the to the second manifesto was a desire to get Reed Smoot nominated to the or, or accepted and seated it, in, it in the U.S. Part of, yeah, it, it was part of that whole time in history that zeitgeist. Um, another aspect was the excommunication of um, John Taylor, who I mentioned earlier. Was that the son of the prophet? Was that the son of the prophet, John Taylor? The son of, yeah, the son of the prophet. He was an apostle. And Matthias Cowley was another apostle. And they were very prominent in these post-manifesto marriages. And so they were, um, they were released from the Quorum of the Twelve as a result of these smoot hearings. And uh, later they were, one was excommunicated, the other was disfellowshipped. But other authorities had taken plural wives. Other general authorities had taken plural wives. B.H. Um, Roberts it, did, it, I, I saw. Yeah, and the son of Wilfred Woodruff is, is one example. Mm-hmm. But they weren't as well known as, as John Taylor and Matthias Cowley. So a bit of a f- potential fall guy sort of thing happening with these two then? Yeah, some people look at them as scapegoats. Scapegoats. You know, and um, heroic, because they accepted this, you know, uh, this, um, this role that they had to pay, play. Right. For the church. And again, I recommend that wonderful biography by Sam Taylor. Uh, what is it called? Family Kingdom. Okay. It tells about his father's experience and his mother's experience. Right. Uh-huh. So so we can say that, that marriages officially ceased uh, for sure by 1904, 1905. And, and well, I. Oh, go ahead. Mostly. Okay. Some people think that even after that, there were a few afterwards, but um, they're not as well documented. So after 1904, it was mostly done in in the Mormon Church. There were other groups, breakoff groups, that practiced polygamy, obviously, that you know about. Okay. Well, um, this is this is fascinating. I I appreciate uh, everything you've shared with us so far. We've now arrived at the point uh, where polygamous marriages have pretty much ceased. Uh, is it is it safe to say that those who had already entered in were sort of grandfathered and allowed to continue, or did the end of polygamy eventually mean that the families had to be dispersed and women and children orphaned? Um, you, you have both of those things happening. Sometimes people were kind of grandfathered in, and other times... People actually gave up their their wives, so it was a very, very difficult, painful time. 
Huh, okay. And from there, um I I guess I guess we can fast forward unless there's anything notable we can fast forward to today. There there were some split offs and, and groups that still exist that that are break offs from the church who wanted to continue and those are known as the fundamentalists, right? It, right. Is there anything is there anything else that that uh someone learning this uh, at a basic level should know about polygamy between nineteen you know, oh five and let's say today? Um I don't know. You could talk a little bit about what you know, fundamentalism in Mormon terms means uh, polygamous groups. And um, so uh, you had groups kind of, there's a, a big group in one of the suburbs of Salt Lake City. And there's another group in um, southern Utah on the Arizona border called Colorado City. And, um, and they still practice it, and they trace their authority back to John Taylor. And so they think of all the church leaders after John Taylor as kind of traitors to polygamy. Which suburb of Salt Lake City are you comfortable saying? Pardon? Which suburb in Salt Lake City? I, I, didn't, I didn't say, and I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, so it's not publicly known. Uh, probably people know, but I, I don't. Okay. I, I haven't studied modern polygamy. Okay. Um, so I just felt that people should have a basic idea that it, it is still going on, but they're break-offs. They're, they're not break Mormon offs, yeah. groups. Um, they're break-offs who, you know, kind of developed after this post-manifesto period. And then maybe the last thing I'll say before I, I move back to talking to you a little bit about your experience writing the book um, and any future work you're doing uh, you know, many of us who are listening are aware that when Gordon Mahinko was interviewed by Larry King and Larry King asked, you know, President Hinckley, what about polygamy? President Hinckley's answer uh, was that it's not doctrinal. Um, were you aware of that? And did you have any thoughts or comments around around that, you know, uh, uh, that statement? I, I think I have. I, I did hear about that. Um, I don't have it in front of me to see exactly what he said. Uh, I know quite early that James Talmadge, he made a statement to the effect that um, polygamy was not a central doctrine of the Church. It was kind of an incidental doctrine. And um, so you have these statements by people in our century that are kind of, they kind of contradict the statements, you know, that say that polygamy was necessary for the highest salvation. And, you know, it's one sign of how our church has changed from a polygamous church to a, a generally monogamous church. Uh, what I find interesting is that how, however, sometimes people kind of have this idea that polygamy will still be in the celestial kingdom. And even though they're, you know, just the most monogamous church you could find. Sometimes, you know, in their faith, they kind of have this idea that in the next life there there will be polygamy. Right. You know, and so that's kind of our heritage from polygamy at this point. And it's also fair to say that polygamous marriages still are uh, 
being enacted. It's just that there's, you know, polygamous in the hereafter. So, for example, my mother is married to right. a man who's sealed to his former wife who's passed away. Right. Yeah. Have some of that going on. So, t tell us, uh, you know, what was it like to publish this book, and what was the reaction, you know, in your family, the extent to which you're comfortable sharing with your family, with your ward, with your stake, and even broader. Um, my family was very good about it, and uh, my parents are pretty conservative, and and. Um, so they've they've been supportive of me. Uh, uh, so as, as far as my words, I've had people, those who know about it, you know, they've been friendly. Uh, a lot of them don't know about it. I don't, you know, I don't bring it up uh, unless it happens to come up. If it, if it comes up, I'm happy to talk about it. In um, in my uh, I was in the Santa Monica stake at the time, and the uh, stake presidency uh, had, you know, wanted me to to visit with them, and um, they kind of expressed um, not so positive feelings about about the book. But um, uh, did you get a sense that they had actually? That, did you get a sense that they had actually read it? I think there was one of them who was a member of the church educational system who might have read it. Hmm. Um, I know he had a copy. Right. And um, so I'm in a different state now, and um, I don't think anyone in my state has mentioned it to me. You know, there's a couple of my friends know about it, but I'm not sure if my bishop knows about it. You've been able to hold callings and stuff then? Pardon? You've been able to hold callings and normal. Um, yeah, I've held callings. Yeah, and I have a calling now. I'm not like what you would call, you know, like a stake president type or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I'm just a standard, you know, someone who tries to go to church every week. <laughs> right. Um, I'm not. I I wouldn't call me super active, but you know, I I enjoy going to church. Um, so, are are you comfortable talking about uh, what impact this study had on your testimony? Whether it deepened it, weakened it, was indifferent to um, it? Yeah, I, I I would say that it's possibly changed the quality of my faith. You know, it isn't, uh, I, I'd say it's made my faith more complex, if you, if you want to talk about it that way. Um, I, I wouldn't say it in terms of strengthening or weakening, but more in terms of making my faith more complex. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I talk about absolutist faith and non-absolutist faith. And absolutist faith means everything has to be absolute, like, a church leader is absolutely perfect, you know, and someone who fights against them is absolutely evil. And I, in, you know, as, as I've come to develop my faith, I, I don't 
see things in that way. I see I see church history and church leaders as more complex right. than that. And I think that more complex faith, I think it, it it's a deepening um, in my view. But it's very difficult for people who do have this absolutist faith to, you know, look at the stuff I've dealt with and I I accept it with my non-absolutist faith, you know, and I accept that complexity. And they haven't, they don't have the background, you know, the, you know, they don't have this point of view of non-absolutist faith to, to deal with these issues. Right. So it's very difficult for them, you know, but... Um, I think the important thing is what I'm reporting is not, I haven't made any of it up. I'm just reporting what's in the historical record. And I really do believe that anything that's true, you know, you can include it in in your faith. So you don't need to be afraid of anything in, in church history if you have, you know, faith that's authentic. Yeah, and I think you do need to develop that more complex faith, that non-absolutist faith. Um, so that's how I deal with it, at least. And um, uh, everyone has to work through these issues themselves, but that's how I work with it. And one last, you know, just uh, to follow up on, on those comments, I could hear some of my listeners thinking, you know, after learning all this stuff in depth and breaking this ground, and I'm sure there are all sorts of things that maybe were shocking to you or really revealing, uh, may I ask, you know, what's kept this from just making you drop it all and say, this is one huge fraud, this is bad, and I'm out of here? You know, is there anything you want to share? Because, you know, part of the purpose of this podcast is to say that, um, you know, uh, leaving the church isn't the only option. That uh, that you can't know the stuff and still stick around, um, and and lots of people do. So, is there anything you can or feel comfortable sharing to to explain why this hasn't led to just a massive defection for you? <laughs> um, and again, let me emphasize: different people react to it in different ways. I can just talk about myself. Yeah. Um, I remember I heard a great talk by uh, a guy named. Um, Stan Kimball, and he talked about how he he said um, when you when you're beginning, you know when you you're starting faith, like when you're a kid, you you have what I guess he would call oversimplified faith. And what he called it was pre primary pablum. <laughs> right. And um, that's not my phrase. That's his phrase. Yes. But. Um, then he said, you go through a period, you know, if you if you study church history and you, you actually study the real church history, you know, like the real documents, uh, he said, and there it it's very difficult, you know, like there's a lot of conflicts with what you've accepted in the PPP period, pre-primary papal right. period. There are a lot of conflicts. And he said, and then different people go different ways, you know, like some people become atheists, um, he says some people, you know, like retreat back into the pre-primary pablum period. You know, it's like they don't want to deal with that, the real history, the real 
issues, you know, in the real documents. He said, but other people can go on and um, and develop a faith that that accommodates the you know the real history, you know, and the the real history that you find in the documents. And um, and he says, according the way he expressed it, he said that that later faith that you have, you know, it, it shares a lot with that previous faith you had. The um, the early faith you had, he said, but it includes all of the, the the real problems, and he said, and that kind, I kind of look at it that way, but I'm not minimizing in any way how difficult the, the conflicts are and how difficult the the problems are, and um, an example he used was the prophets in the Old Testament. He said, you go back to those prophets and you find out how extremely human they are. You know, you look at Jonah and how he didn't he didn't want the people he, he was sent to to repent. That, you know, um, he was just very human. You know, and they had lots of, you look at the prophets in, in Genesis, you know, and sometimes they're deceptive. Um, uh, lots of very, very human people, and yet there's this inspiration of God working through them at times. You know, at times they're rebelling against it, and at times it's there. And so, um, I, I kind of look at it that way, you know, but I'm not mis- minimizing at all how difficult it is. For sure, and, sure. Um, but um, I think that it's important that we, you know, really do come to terms with these problems because they're there. You know, it's like Joseph Smith is a major figure. You know, and there's this kind of this idea that we should keep his polygamy kind of like as a taboo subject and never talk about it. And that's just silly. He's a major figure in American history. Uh, someone's plural, you know, someone's wives, someone's family life, it's part of their, it's part of their history. It's part of their life. You have to deal with it. You know, and it's much better to find out what the real story is and, and try to work through it than it is to just act like this is a taboo subject that no one should should deal with. So so that's how I deal with it. That's how I look at it. Well, uh, excellent. Everyone looks at it differently. By the way, one of the books I recommend is Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Bushman. Yes. And um, he deals with the Joseph Smith polygamy, quite frankly. He doesn't, you know, it isn't as extensive as in my book. My book's 800 pages, but he, he deals with it quite frankly and is interesting how he looks at it. So I recommend that for you know, if there happen to be conservative Mormons out there who will want to see how a really fine scholar who's a good member of the church looks at it. And, and at the beginning of the podcast, you asked me to make sure and... Uh, ask you what other books you recommend. You've mentioned several along the way, but are there any others you wanted oh, to yeah, add? Oh, yeah, let me just mention a few. Um, uh, I mentioned Dane's More Wives Than One. She's a BYU professor, and um, that one has been widely acclaimed. Um, uh, Larry Lawrence Foster wrote a book called Religion and Sexuality, which is a fine book, and he compares Mormon polygamy to the Shakers in the Oneida community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the earliest books on polygamy, and it's still one of the best. 
Richard Van Wagner wrote a fine book called Mormon Polygamy that's a history, just basically a history of polygamy. And it goes through the whole story. Um, okay. Um, Solemn Covenant by Carmen Hardy deals with post-manifesto polygamy. And that's that's one of the great books in Mormon history. Mm-hmm. It really, he's just such a fine scholar, and it's such a fascinating story. What's the name of that again? I really, I really recommend that. Mormon Enigma is a really interesting look at um, Joseph Smith's polygamy from the viewpoint of Emma Smith. It was very difficult for Emma Smith. So uh, that's that's another standard look at, at polygamy. So uh, if you read all those books, you're pretty well up on polygamy. <laughs> and might I add for one last time, uh, In Sacred Loneliness by Todd Compton, published by who? Uh, signature books. Signature books. So what's uh, what's next for Todd Compton? Oh, I'm just having a book coming out um, that's from my classics background. Um, uh, and it's called, let's see, it's got a really weird title, Victim of the Muses, Poet, Scapegoat, Warrior, and Hero in Greco-Roman and Indo-European Myth and History. Hmm. It's being published by Center for Hellenic Studies in Washington, D.C., which is connected with Harvard University Press. Excellent. And so that's kind of a nibbly, kind of a nibbly-esque book. Mm-hmm. So that's totally different than in Sacred Loneliness, but um, uh, I'll be interested to see what Mormon's reaction is to that book also. And any other uh, Mormon Studies titles uh, in the in the pots doing? Uh, any other titles in what? In Mormon Studies? Oh, they, well, a lot of great books. You know, like Leonard Arrington, Great Basin Kingdom is basic. Oh, no, 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 no I'm sorry. Massacre. I, I'm sorry, I meant in uh, from you. So any other Mormon oh, Studies titles? I'm, I'm doing a biography of Jacob Hammond. Uh, so that's a real... Um, and he was he, he was a, a major figure in the Mountain Meadows Massacre, is that right? Uh, no, he he was actually in Salt Lake City marrying a plural wife during the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Okay. So he was lucky, he missed it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, he's just a fascinating figure in Southern Utah history, um, Native American history. Uh, so I wanted a real change of pace. Yeah. And um, uh, he is one. Very good. Well, I just want to thank you so much for taking, whoa, well over two hours uh, to be on this podcast. I think that um, hopefully many people who aren't so inclined to uh, to reading or, or at least to deep, deep reading about Mormon studies will be able to get a good overview um, of this very important issue to Mormonism. I just can't thank you enough for being willing to take the time to do this uh, you're interview. You're sure welcome. The history of polygamy sure is... It's incredibly fascinating. Well, um, I'm sold, and I hope uh, I'm sure our listeners are as well. So, Todd Compton, thanks again for coming on this podcast. Okay, you're you're welcome. And I'd just like to thank all of you for listening uh, and tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed what you've listened to today. If you have any feedback, please send it to us at uh, mormonstories at gmail.com. We're very grateful for your listenership. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot and take care. 